Okay, guys, Kim here briefly, just popping in before you listen to say that this next episode with Representative Emily Virgin of Oklahoma was recorded in September of 2020. And We had to hold on to it for a variety of reasons, and the only word that you need to know about that is COVID. So we will be back with more from Representative Virgin uh, and actually all the people on our team who have been impacted by COVID later this week uh, with a very special, special, special bonus episode called Wear a Fucking Mask. Without further ado, here is Off the Fucking Rails with Kim Griffin. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Off the Fucking Rails with Kim Griffin. I am, as always, still, unfortunately, or fortunately, Kim Griffin. And I'm joined today with my associate producers, Jared Smith and Allison Beauregard, as we have a conversation with a friend of mine who's also a very cool person and is going to tell us about, I don't even know what, I'm so excited, I'm giddy. Um, We're talking today with Representative Emily Virgin. Thank you so much for being here, Emily. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is this is spectacular. We've been engaged in so many conversations about the ever-changing political landscape in the world and how it's different from place to place and how we as a team can invite more people to be civically minded, engaged and participating, whatever that means for them. So we are really beside ourselves to get to speak with somebody who's actually serving. And thank you for your service to the people of Oklahoma and our country. Being that my whole family is there actually means a great deal to me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, your sister is one of my best friends and lives super close to me. Let's jump into the questions here. We ask the following yeah. questions of each of our guests. They're very weird. I don't know if you looked at them, but we're just going to jump yes. in. Without further ado, could you tell us a little bit about your astrological profile? Do you know your sun, moon, or rising signs? And if you do, what does any of that mean to you? So I don't really know any of that. I know that I'm a Libra and uh, my birthday is October 1st. <gasps> oh my and... gosh, coming right up. Yes. And very close to your sister's birthday also. Yep. Um, so we're basically the same. Here's the thing. I don't know very much about astrology, but Mm -hmm. it is something that I would love to learn more about because I have found myself being very cynical about it in the past. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because you read your horoscope in the newspaper, which I know is just like the most basic of astrology. And I'm like, well, that's just, that could apply to anyone. That doesn't Mm -hmm. mean anything to me. Kind of like a fortune cookie. I don't know. Yes. But, um, But, you know, a lot of people that I love and think are very, very smart and have it together, they love astrology. And so I do want to learn more about it. Those questions are really just more like, I love hearing even from people that are like, I don't do it. Or even, you know, someone extreme like my dad, who's like, it's all horseshit. (laughs) Like, okay. (laughs) I'm somewhere, somewhere less uh, cynical of where Jerry is. I might tend more towards that end of things than believing in it just yet. But hey, I mean, I, like I said, anything at this yeah, point. Well, um, who knows anything at this point? Yeah. I have an uh, awesome therapist 
who I talk to every Friday now on the phone um, mm-hmm. because we don't do in-person things right now. Um, and she believes in science, which is fantastic. That's yeah. a, a big find in Oklahoma these days. Uh-huh. Stick with uh-huh. her. Stick uh-huh. with her. And, uh, you know, big fan of pharmaceuticals as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm, again, open to all the things. Yeah. Well, you just answered our fourth question. What's what's your relationship to mental health? So thank you for oh, that. Yeah. Because that's, that's you know, uh, yeah, a I part mean, of everyone's I, puzzle. Right. Absolutely. And I've been in therapy and um, been treated for depression and anxiety since I was 17. And so it's been, it's been almost half my life now. And I've just come to the realization that it's going to be, it's going to be a lifelong struggle for me. Just like some people have high blood pressure or some people have high cholesterol or whatever it is. And so it's something that I have to keep treating constantly. It's not not something that I can just um, hope gets better because you got to work at it. You do. And and that's, uh, I use that, that reframe that you just gave, you know, like, well, if it was high blood pressure, I would never question it. And if it was any number of these other more literal, tangible things that are easier for us to justify and explain, you wouldn't think a thing of it. I recently went back on the medication and, um, only went off because things just really, it was kind of the genesis of this project was things just went off the rails. My SSRI stopped working. I was having night sweats. I couldn't eat. We tried two different medications, which, you know, you have to titrate down off of one and then bump up on the other. So I had spent a good eight months trying to stabilize and it was just impossible. And so for the first time, I guess in a decade, I went off of everything slowly with my therapist still involved, my psychiatrist, Reiki tarot, sage stuff. It's never going to be gone, but the way that I need to interact with it will change. I'm learning as I'm, as I'm getting older. And I think that that's something that we all should hear more about because it's true for most people. So I appreciate your transparency on that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is all, it's a little scary to talk about, but I've, I've done it enough that I'm used to it. And I, that's one of the things that is really important to me is to use this platform that I have to hopefully normalize some of these things and to destigmatize because we do, we do unfortunately just see it still so much, um, especially in a place like Oklahoma. I completely agree. Thank you so much. You know, I mean, you just said that you started when you were 17 seeking treatment. Do you remember what that was like for you? I mean, and you don't have to go into any great detail, but that's, that's young. And I would imagine that like you had to have openness with your family at that age. And yeah, I'm incredibly lucky to have fantastic parents who I always felt like I could go to, but even with such a close relationship with them, it was terrifying to talk to them about it because you are, you know, everybody is somehow ingrained with this stigma that like, Oh, something's wrong with me. You know, if you got a broken bone, of course you would go straight to your parents and be like, Oh my gosh, you have to take me to the hospital. But with this sort of problem, it's, it's scary. And so, and I think my parents probably noticed a change in me, but I've always been really good at, at hiding it and being that person that can turn it on for as long as I need to. And then it just goes off for a long time. Yeah. High functioning, um, and right? 
Yeah. Yeah. Very. Yeah. That's what my therapist always told me. You're very high functioning. Thank you. And we still want that gold uh, star, even though we know it drives us over the edge. Please. Yes. Please see me for functioning so highly. Yes. Yes. I am a very high functioning, depressed person. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. But always, always seeking that approval. But, uh, you know, it was my senior year of high school and I went to a smaller school. I went to Noble just south of, of Norman. And so, you know, being at the top of my class and, you know, it wasn't as cliquish as some other places. So I was friends with basically everyone. By all accounts, I should have been having a fantastic time. And I was sometimes, but there were these really exciting things happening in my life that I should have been really pumped for. And I just couldn't find the excitement for those things. So I knew that something was wrong. It took me a little while to talk to my parents about it, Mm -hmm. but I, I eventually did. And as soon as I talked to them about it, you know, we talked to our primary care doctor about therapist and I started therapy. And I think the reason why my parents were so great about it was because both sides of their family have um, issues with mental health and substance abuse. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't necessarily, it, it was something that they dealt with before, but nobody in their families before the two of them had really ever addressed it. It was that generation of, we just don't talk about it. Yeah. So I, again, like I was just very lucky that that they reacted the way that they did. And, you know, they still both are not as open about their mental health as I am about mine, but you know, they're getting there. Thank you for sharing that account. I just think it's really important. I work with former students and I have former students listening. And I think that if there's any value to some of the struggles that we've experienced it's that if we share them, they can help other people. So I really appreciate you sharing what that was like going through. And we also like to ask each of our guests to answer any of the following financial, potentially uncomfortable questions on the list of things you're not supposed to talk about. Money was certainly at the top in the house I grew up in. And as a result of that, I was very bad with money. I made a lot of mistakes that led me to believe I was a piece of garbage and I lived in debt and I hid from things. And I now know that the more we all talk about how complicated it is, how different it is from place to place, and how we've all had our own relationship to that journey, we make space for other people to feel less yucky about themselves and to maybe get clear and not make the mistakes that, if you're me, we've made. So would you be willing to answer any of the following? A, what is your FICO score? B, what do you pay for your rent or mortgage? How much space does that afford you and where? Or C, how much debt do you carry? So, um, I my credit score I feel like is in the it recently got into the seven hundreds because I've been doing better. Like I'm dancing I, for her. Went, you can't see it, but I I'm fucking through, dancing. I went through the same th- I went through the same thing, Kim. Like, I mean, I never wanted for anything as a kid, but I also like didn't learn those financial lessons. And so I struggled for a while, just not knowing how to do those things. And so when I went to buy a car recently, well, it's been a year ago and looked at my credit score, I was like, Oh God, like that's that's not good. And so I've, I've been really intentional about trying to do better there, but I am also, again, incredibly lucky to have parents who will still help me out at 
33, almost 34 years old. But this will blow Californians' minds. My mortgage is about $1,500 a month. And my house is, I want to say, 1,700, 1,800 square feet. So I have like two, three bed. I mean, this is this is technically a bedroom that I'm in right now, but I don't use it as a bedroom. Two bed, one and a half bath, tons of space, huge yard. And it's, you know, completely affordable for a single person like me. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, and I don't, and I don't make that much money. Well, and I think, you know, a huge reason that I asked that question is because it's different everywhere and we condition ourselves to feel good or bad or what, and I, you know, it costs, it costs something different for you to live where you live than it does where I live for a variety of reasons. Um, but it's all, I think really interesting and it kind of just forces us to be, bear in mind like, oh yeah, it's different other places. Oh, right. It, right. Like I can't do anything about the cost of mortgages out here. I could leave. I mean, I know my dad's like, well, you could move here and it's. I would lose a lot of the things that I have that I really need to be a happy person and serve my children. And yeah, like, so that's just, it's, it's all, it's all different everywhere. Um, you got two New Yorkers here that both probably pay about what you pay for a bedroom. So, and that's what I, you know, did when I was there. So thank you for answering those. I appreciate that. Yeah. And I, I will say even in Oklahoma where housing is relatively cheap compared to the rest of the country, we recently got numbers back on how much it costs to live in Oklahoma city compared to what minimum wage is. Mm-hmm. And it is, I mean, it's impossible to make that work. Um, and so that, it's not to say that living in Oklahoma is cheap. We, we like to say, oh, the cost of living is so low. Wages are also really low. Thank and you. That's what no. I'm always, no, like it's a full picture. It's the same, you know, it's not like I, people all the time out here are like, well, I'm just going to move home and we'll have so much. And it's like, first of all, no. Second of all, are you sure? <laughs> like, Second of all, no. no, no one can afford to live. Like it's fucked everywhere. And you know, at least in some places there's a, a real effort, you know, to, have a living with minimum wage. Um, I would imagine it's really heartbreaking to try and serve people that, you know, can't afford to live in Oklahoma or to live in Norman where there's a rising homelessness population. Housing costs are high because we have a university here. I ask all of our guests because I think anyone who's made it this long in life has survived lots of things, um, to, uh, to finish the following sentence, Emily earned their membership to the survivors club by way of that is one that I, I did read these in advance because I'm the person who is, has the fear of failure and I always want to be prepared. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but I um, that's one that I still struggle with. But I think, you know, I've, I've had an incredibly privileged life. So that's not something that I want to go without saying. Um, yeah. But as my therapist tells me, everything is valid that you feel. Um, and so even though, you know, your struggles look different than someone else's, you do still struggle with them. And so I think my survival has been from the death of all four of my grandparents and the different experiences that I had with them in life and death. The grandparent that I was closest to was my dad's mom and my dad's an only child. And so my brother and I were the only grandkids on that side. And 
my grandparents moved to just about five minutes away from us. So we, you know, we basically lived at their house half the time. My grandma was just this really incredible person who grew up in poverty and made sure that, you know, she, that she got out of it. And that wasn't without some luck as well. Um, but, you know, throughout her life, she also was sort of shamed by her family because she did seek out, you know, an education and seek out a career. And that's something that I know a lot of people struggle with, but she died when I was 12. I just turned 12 and she had been, she had leukemia. So she had been sick for a while, but I never really knew how sick she was. Um, and in talking to my parents now as an adult, I know that she died very suddenly. They didn't expect that she was going to die when she did. The thing that just really gets me now is that the type of leukemia that she had, just a few years after that, they basically came up with the closest thing to a cure as you can get. And so throughout my life, I felt really cheated from time with her um, because she was, even when I was 12, I mean, she was such a huge influence in my life and really was, was like my best friend at the time too. And so losing her so early, it just, it just pisses me off. Basically, <laughs> It just makes me really, really angry. Then my, my grandpa died six years after that, but he struggled with alcoholism. That was, and it was of course exacerbated after my Grandma died. Um, and so there's some there's some trauma with my dad, definitely when he was a kid around that, but also with us. Um, and then my mom's parents were like the total opposite and they died within six months of each other. And uh, I was I was an adult and an elected official by then. And so I took on a lot of the you know, planning and being the strong one throughout all of that. And I have found that I didn't I, I really never let myself grieve for the loss of, of those two grandparents. And my grandpa on that side was an elected official. Uh, he was, uh, we call them county commissioners here. A lot of places have different names for them. But he was uh, in that position for 22 years, and I grew up working on his campaigns. I got elected in 2010, and he died in 2013. And so there was a period of time there um, where we were both elected officials. And even though we were different political parties, it made no difference to him. He was just so incredibly proud and told everyone. And then, of course, I had to, as has been ingrained in me forever, uh, that I was the strong one. I couldn't, you know, not showing my emotions, just dealing with it, getting shit done and moving on. Ooh. So much that thank you so much for that. And that is a great answer and takes us into, you know, you're addressing how you came into your life of public service. This is something that your family does. Can you talk to us just a little bit about, I mean, I love hearing about you growing up with your grandfather. I just think it, I think it's astonishing what you do. And there are so few women or that's changing all of the time, but, um, how did you, not enough how yet, are you yeah. not enough yet? Yes, exactly. And so what, what drew you to it? What do you remember about growing up being in a family of service? How is it? <laughs> yeah, I I really appreciate that you frame it as public service because it is. That's what it um, is. It is, but uh, but it doesn't get framed like that very often. And so I I appreciate that because it is 
it is a sacrifice for a lot of people and it's a sacrifice for people's families. Mm-hmm. And that's what gets lost a lot is that when you sign up to run for office, you're signing your whole family up to run for office. Especially and these days. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. With social media, like I'm just lucky that I got elected at such a young age and I hadn't screwed up very much <laughs> at that point. So there isn't like, you know, a whole bunch of stuff hiding in the closet for me. But yeah, so I just grew up around it. My dad actually, it's not his dad who was an elected official. It's its um, the other side. But my dad ran for city council in his hometown when he was 19 and got elected then. And yeah, so um, he started really young. Yeah, like what nineteen year old? Like, I mean, I know I was I was twenty four by the time I got elected, and but there's a there was a very large difference between me at nineteen and twenty (laughs) four, like huge difference. Yeah, Uh, like college was a difference that happened (laughs) during that time. Anyway, so he he started a, a career in public service at a really young age. He didn't get elected to anything after that, but he worked on campaigns, um, worked on a gubernatorial campaign here in Oklahoma during his, his first year of law school. And so I ended up running for office my first year, my first year and second year of law school. You know, it just, I think the reason why I felt confident enough to do it at that age was number one, I was dumb enough to not know the things that should make me not do that at 23, there's something to be said for, for being naive, because now when I talk to people about running for office, I'm like, Ooh, let me tell you the things. But also it just was, it was accessible to me because I knew how to run and win a local campaign. Mm -hmm. And it really is just about getting out and talking to the voters. It's not really anything that complicated. When you get to a level above where I'm at, of course, it gets more complicated in terms of you got to raise money to get on TV and you don't go knock people's doors. You pay people to do that or you get, you know, it, it gets much more complex and less focused on the candidate talking to people. Mm-hmm. But I grew up knocking doors in neighborhoods all around here. And so I was like, oh, yeah, you just, I mean, you just go knock on people's doors and talk to them and, and see what their issues are. In Oklahoma, we have term limits. So the current representative was turning out after 12 years. And I thought, you know, I can do this now or I can wait for 12 years, potentially. And of course, it was not great timing because I was starting law school. But also it was good timing because I was young and energetic and again, naive enough to to sign up for that. I've always been powered by public service. It's you know, my my brother was a district attorney, an assistant district attorney, and now is a judge. And, you know, my, like I already said, my, my grandfather on my mom's side um, served for over 20 years. And so it's not necessarily like, you know, it's not something that is in your DNA. But again, it is just that I grew up around it and it was accessible to me. When other people might think, what in the hell do you do to run a campaign? It seems very complicated. Um, They have no idea where to begin. Whereas I was like, oh, yeah, I just, you know, I go knock on doors. And I did. People people got real tired of me. It was great. (laughs) (laughs) All right. 23. Okay. Dreams. 
So you are the Oklahoma state minority leader at present. Oklahoma is a largely Republican state. When you talk about your job, I don't pick up on any nasty partisanism or anything like that, which is so delightful. And I love that you, I do view it as service. And I wonder what it is like to be in a state and to be a state minority leader. What has that been like for you? And how do you, I mean, I can draw my own conclusions from the press, but I also know that that's a different arena than how you all behave behind closed doors and collegially. What is that experience like? How do you feel respected by your peers? And do you feel like there's a difference between what happens behind closed doors and what we get to see when we watch you on the steps of the Capitol? You know, I try to always keep in mind what I'm doing behind closed doors should be open to the public. (laughs) That's sort of a guiding principle to me that I try not to say or do anything behind closed doors that i that I would be embarrassed if my constituents found out. And, you know, of course I haven't been perfect in that. I, you know, say the F word far too often, but I don't think my constituents would be mad about that. (laughs) I do represent a college town after all. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's been a really, really crazy 10 years now um, that I've been elected. Yeah, it's it's really, really strange to think about that it's been that long. But like I thought it a second ago when you said you were elected <laughs> in 2010, but then still hearing you say it, that's such a tremendous amount of time. It really is yeah. just a wow. I'm astonished. Yeah. yeah, it is. And it's it's interesting to look back and think about how in the moment, And I know that they say this about raising kids, that the days are long, but the years are short. And it feels that way, that I remember so many long days campaigning. And then more recently, just at the Capitol, when our state has been in crisis. And the days are so long sometimes, but 10 years has flown by. And I, I really can't believe that I'm, I'm headed into my last term. And in two years, I'll have to get a real job, I guess. I don't know. Um, <laughs> so um, I say that, that I'll have to get a real job because I love this job so much. And I'm not going to say it doesn't feel like work because it does. Anybody yeah. who says they don't feel like they're working, they're full of shit. That's not true. Or they're not but doing it's really, job. <laughs> right, right. But it's really, yeah, like your boss should fire you. Um, but it's really, really fulfilling. And being a minority leader, I've, I've been in this position for a couple years now. And, you know, my joking response is that it feels like beating my head against the wall day after day, because that that can be what it feels like being the minority in a state Mm -hmm. that is heavily populated with the other party. Mm -hmm. But, you know, every time I speak out on an issue, I get emails or contacts from People in completely different parts of the state who are saying, Mm -hmm. thank you for speaking out on this. I mean, just the other day, we were dealing, we're still dealing with some COVID outbreaks in several of our, uh, yeah, our prison facilities. Oh, yeah. Um, Oh, yeah. I just read that and like started screaming. Anyway. Yeah. Please. Yeah. So there's a lot of that. There's a lot of feeling like screaming. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's such a huge responsibility that I feel, and I'm glad to take it on, but it is so important, no matter where you are, that the minority has a strong voice. 
and that the minority understands the responsibility to provide that dissenting voice. Mm-hmm. Because no matter where you are, there are people who you're going to be representing. And it's about accountability also, especially in a state like Oklahoma, where you have a Republican supermajority. Mm-hmm. I think the minorities position is even more important in a state like this because the supermajority can pretty much do whatever they want. Mm-hmm. The only thing that we have to stop them is to talk to the public about what's actually going on. So while I may not get a whole lot of bills passed um, and I may not have a whole lot of official legislative accomplishments, I do still feel a huge sense of accomplishment when I'm able to speak out on something and know that people are listening and know that it makes a difference. So that's me on my soapbox. But I mean, about the the prison issue. Yeah, I was just going to say, let's circle back because I would love to hear, I mean, reading that from a Californian's perspective, we released a ton of prisoners (laughs) across the state at the beginning of the pandemic and still had sizable outbreaks that were traced to external outbreaks after the fact. From what I understood, the article that I read claimed that you were saying that prison workers, people that work for corrections should be tested, which seems pretty, uh, pretty basic. And the response that I read was that that's not legal and they don't have to do it. That right. pretty much so it's, get it? it's really yeah you you got it I'm really um, disappointed because I'm blonde and I was like I'm sure I missed something <laughs> she's gonna fix it in my brain no there's not a okay sorry All right. not okay. here to save the day uh, I'm here to crush your soul sorry great great um, so why don't you crush it by telling us about mm. why why you think that this is important and what is happening in one particular prison in Taft that leads you to believe it could be a a life-saving measure. Yeah. So we actually, you know, in Oklahoma, things were, things were pretty different from the beginning of the pandemic for us because we are a less dense state where we have large uh, rural population. And so we didn't have the level of outbreak that a lot of states saw. Mm -hmm. But as States like New York and California are doing better. Oklahoma and other states like us are continuing to do worse and worse and worse. And that's because we just have been irresponsible about it. And so it's not necessarily surprising given that we are one of, depending on whose measure you look at, we're either number one or number two in terms of incarceration per capita in the entire world, not just the country. In the entire world. Okay. Yeah. America leads the world. And then when you take that Oklahoma is either number one or two in America. Yeah. So world leader in incarceration and which is just bananas because we know that people in Oklahoma are not worse than people anywhere else. So we have a problem there. So we have overcrowded prisons that are understaffed and we don't have enough money to pay our correctional officers a living wage. And they're constantly working double shifts and putting their lives at risk. I mean, we've literally lost correctional workers because they have fallen asleep on the way home. Thankfully, we've we've given them a raise, a, a small raise, but they still can go and make more money in the private sector. When you combine the, the overcrowding with the pandemic, it's not hard to see what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And so because things went a little more slowly in the beginning for Oklahoma, we're just now seeing these outbreaks 
in our prisons. And so that started making the news. So I inquired with our Department of Corrections about what they were doing. And they they do have a pretty good testing program for those who are imprisoned and they are quarantining and things like that. But they're not testing their staff. They're offering tests to their staff but they're not requiring them to be tested. So I did a little bit of research on that and found, of course, that California is requiring their staff to be tested and several other states are requiring their staff to be tested. And the Federal Employment Office and the ADA say it's perfectly fine to require your workers to be tested in this instance, because if you haven't noticed, we're in the middle of a pandemic. So it, it, again, it doesn't take a rocket science to figure out when you have a population that doesn't leave, Mm-hmm. And then you have another population that's coming and going. The virus is only going to get in one way, mm-hmm. and that's through the staff. So, of course, they're doing health screening. So if you have a fever, you can't come in. But we all know that there are plenty of asymptomatic carriers around. Our governor said he was basically asymptomatic. It just is very basic that we need to be testing the staff regularly. And we're not doing that. And I'm getting a whole lot of excuses as to why we can't do that. And the last conversation that I had with uh, the people at Corrections and they're, you know, they're public servants. They are, they are doing their best under the circumstances. But I just told them it's incredibly frustrating that we know a solution here to prevent the loss of life. And we're not doing it. You know, I was really disappointed with our, with our governor's response about our recent numbers, our Mm -hmm. recent testing, our positive test rates, he said basically, oh, well, pay no mind to that because those are, those are prisons. And so those don't really count. Like, well, first of all, people who are in prison are also people and we have a responsibility to take care of them because we have put them in prison. Second of all, the virus doesn't stay in the prisons. People come and go and they take it back to their communities. And that's what I think the mayor of Taft was saying was that um, they know people who work at the prisons and have come back and have have spread the virus. And so it's not that we can just discount these people as saying, oh, they're prisoners. They don't count. And mm-hmm. we don't we don't need to to worry about that situation. It's about all of us. If there were ever a time for collective activism and collective worry, responsibility, it's this one. And mm-hmm. so it's just been it's been really frustrating. But back to what I was uh, saying before, this position gives me the ability to speak out about these things and when I, you know, send out a press release, the media will cover it. Thankfully, yeah. bringing attention to the issue is really important. I can't, I can't force the Department of Corrections to start testing their staff, but I can certainly bring attention to the fact that they're not doing it, and they should. Moving into um, our associate producer section, Jared, I know that you had a question for Emily. Would you like to hop on and, and ask away? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I first off want to reiterate everything that Kenneth said, which is just thank you for all the work that you do. I think everything's just so important. And immediately when I was reading up about you, uh, just as like a black gay man, the um, religious freedom bill in 2015 in Oklahoma, like so yeah. many articles popped up with that. And I would just like <laughs> send them in our like podcast group being like, she freaking rules. Like she's just so awesome. And I guess I just wanted to talk about how you come to such a creative 
solution like that, basically with the amendment that you proposed with the bill that um, would make business owners uh, have a sign on their door that said exactly who they were denying their services to. And I guess how we can use that all the time. I just think it's not, you don't see that very often, just like really creative responses like that, instead of just feeling really bogged down by um, legislation that can be really harmful. Well, thankfully, we have largely moved past a place in Oklahoma where we're seeing ridiculous pieces of legislation like that filed, which would have given businesses the right to discriminate against basically anyone they wanted to discriminate against. Of course, it was targeting the LGBT community, but, you know, anybody who was in an interracial relationship, um, just you could you could take it to any number of logical conclusions. So what, like I said, what I proposed in an amendment was essentially to point out the ridiculousness of the situation and to to tell these businesses or these I don't really know of any businesses who were asking for this bill. Let's be clear. I don't think they were. It was coming from a place of anti-gay sentiment that was just rampant in Oklahoma at the time. It's, it's of course, not gone, but as, as many places in the country have, we have moved forward a great deal on that issue. And we're discussing conversion therapy uh, the last couple of years um, and... There is a movement to try to outlaw conversion therapy in Oklahoma, so that's good. But, of course, there is the pro-conversion therapy lobby that's rearing its head. So, anyway, back to the other hateful bill. You know, at that time, I was I was really, really frustrated and really sort of beat down by these attempts that just kept popping up. And it seemed like... What else can we do to to try to stop these things and to try to get our message across? The religious freedom bills were cropping up around the country at the time, but Oklahoma is always sort of a testing ground for things like that, which is super fun for, uh, you know, members of the LGBT community who are, are seeing their supposed leaders and representatives proposing these things that are, you know, dehumanizing them. But I was talking to actually a, a former legislator who at the time was with the ACLU in Oklahoma, and we were just sort of strategizing about how we could stop this particular bill. Because the ACLU, you know, is very pro-speech, pro-religious freedom. But of course, they were saying this is this is discriminatory and this isn't about religious freedom. This is about legalizing discrimination. And so we were like, okay, well, let's walk through this situation and think if you are a gay couple and you're actually going into this bakery, let's say, wanting to get a cake, how horrible is it to go in and that business to say, oh, sorry, you seem gay. We're not going to do that for you. And then saying, well, what if we could stop that? What if, what if we could say um, members of the community don't even need to be attempting to patronize this business? And that's sort of where the idea cropped up. But there are lots of, there were lots of other inspirational ideas and figures, particularly in the abortion access space of pointing out the hypocrisy in the way that we treat women's bodies and the way we treat men's bodies. 
And so trying to apply sort of that same standard to men's bodies was the inspiration because there have been lots of, of amendments and ideas proposed across the country that would, you know, put the same restrictions on men's bodies as we put on women's. And that was sort of the idea. That was the inspiration for that idea, I guess. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, Again, I just think asking. that, yeah, it just is really inspiring just to see like, I guess, like, just like out of the box thinking in that way. Because again, it can feel a little, like you said, and I feel like it, it always changes. But like when you see bills like that sprout up all over the country and stuff, it's easy to feel kind of bogged down. Um, but it's so really freeing and wonderful to know that there are people like you who are fighting for us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and that is another, you know, I talked about the, the importance of the, of the vocal minority, but there's also this huge responsibility that we have to let people who are feeling marginalized and who the majority is marginalizing to let those folks know that there are people in those legislative bodies that are listening and that care and that are trying to represent them. Because imagine being a teenager in rural Oklahoma and thinking about coming out to your parents and then seeing all of these headlines, it's just, it's heartbreaking. And so I think we have, we have a responsibility to, to let those folks know that we are listening and that we're there. Yes. Kim's going to cry. We all do. I might. I really <laughs> might. Allison, do you have any questions for Emily? Mm, I do. I don't know if there's a question in here maybe, but I just want to say that I feel really moved by how forward and transparent you are as a person in politics, because I still like bristle every time I go to post something political on Facebook, because that's where all my family is. And I'm from Massachusetts, where I think there's a false belief that like, oh, everyone's liberal. And it's it's great. But my family's very conservative. And it wasn't until the 2016 election that you know, I was kind of like, I'm voting for Hillary. And then <laughs> my mom was like, are you, are you, are you a liberal? Cause, cause me too. Like, and my sister was like, Oh my God, me too. And we're like, Oh, it's just our straight white dad. That's the Republican. And he even, even he is like, you know, he actually did end up voting for Hillary and at least someone's but, dad did the right thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Did I, I'm not muted. My bad. I'm just feeling really moved by all of that, especially where you said, you know, you were of a different political party than your grandfather and uh, how you were able to move so far into the spotlight, given any differences that you may have with your friends or your neighbors or your family. And that's just really inspiring and really powerful. Thank you. I, I too bristle at putting political opinions on my personal Facebook. So that's not, that's not just you. Even though it, everyone knows how I feel about everything, you know, it, it, I do sort of have a tendency to like post about my nieces or my pets or happy fun things because um, Facebook sucks most of the time. Um, oh, and I, ever. honestly, if I if I didn't have to have a Facebook account to run my political page, I think I would have left Facebook a long time ago. Yeah. And I'm very jealous of those who did. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> everyone leave Facebook now, <laughs> you know, I, I do have those folks in my family who are, are still very far to the other end of the political spectrum, because after all, this is Oklahoma and my mom's family uh, was very Catholic. 
and she's the oldest of six kids. And in those six kids, you run the gamut of political opinions. And, um, you know, I have one aunt who is married to a black man and, of course, has a biracial son. And then I have some other people in my family who are posting that Black Lives Matter is a terrorist organization. And I've struggled, I think, like everyone who is, you know, progressive in this time and concerned about Black lives and what's happening um, to Black and brown people across this country i struggled, not as much as Black people have struggled, let's be clear about that, but um, <laughs> I've struggled with how to talk about these issues, you know, with my family who I know vehemently disagree with me. And I vacillate between you've got to have the conversations and plant the seeds and screw it, there's no point. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to move on to somebody who has an open mind and an open heart about these issues. So I don't have the answer to that, but I, I do struggle with it. Mostly the issues that I talk about are very state specific. And from the beginning, you know, when you're at this level of governance, you're told stay away from national issues. Don't mm-hmm. comment on national politics because that just gets you in trouble blah, blah, blah. I've come to the the point where I'm like, you know what? Screw that. That's, that's not okay. Um, because what's happening nationally is also happening in Oklahoma and particularly with governor Stitt. So thank right. you. Yeah. Let's, let's just yeah. call I mean, that. The, that's the yeah. huge shift and it has right. to be addressed. Yeah. The governing style that we're seeing at the national level and what we're seeing in Oklahoma are very similar. And this let's fill the cabinet with straight white men and have only straight white men at the table making the decisions is incredibly detrimental, not just for the policymaking decisions, but for little kids of color or girls who are thinking, well, I don't see anyone like me, so I can't be that. Um, Representation matters. And we're taking huge steps backwards in that area in Oklahoma. So I'm not really sure how I got to that. Well, I, no, I do. What you brought up. (laughs) Well, I, there's, you just kind of bridged something. Allison brought up, you know, I love so much when Allison was telling us this, those of you who are listening obviously can't hear, but she kind of like leaned and was talking out of the side of her mouth to kind of indicate what a secrety secret it is, like even in your own house with your family. And I love that what came out was that all three of the women, four people in your family, Mm -hmm. three women, one man, all three of the women were actually secret liberals. And something that I'm really genuinely curious about, particularly being from Oklahoma and seeing what has been going on, I see a lot of what I, I wonder if there's a lot of internalized misogyny and a lot of, I am not allowed to step outside of, well, my husband said, I wonder if you hear from people that are saying, I would vote for you if it wasn't, if it was up to me, or if you, if you feel that there's something I still believe personally that just like you're saying, if there's not the representation or if you don't have mouthy broads like me in your life being like, that's fucking crazy to like, you're going to make somebody get an intravaginal ultrasound before you let them get a fucking abortion. Hi, we can't afford the children we have. We don't feed the children we have. My schools that my kids go to are giving out free motherfucking lunches every day of this pandemic. And if they didn't, children all over Los Angeles would die. 
And I don't even know about all of the things that are happening because there are unhoused populations and there are prison populations and there are foster people. But like when we allow ourselves to understand the ramifications of these things, I think that we gain the courage to do what you, you were given by virtue of being in that area, right? Just like if I had decided to go to law school, which I did think about, and I was offered a free ride and I turned it down to do monologues for Shakespeare. It's fine. Um, <laughs> Loving my life choices, loving my life choices. (laughs) We did it. Um, But, you know, like if I had done that, that would have felt natural and normal because my dad's an attorney and you had the gift of seeing these people in your life doing a thing. So it was normalized for you. Thinking to the fact that Oklahoma is so rural that it has recently had a massive teacher strike, which resulted in almost nothing. What do you think of the gender, the gender dynamics in, in, the, in Oklahoma. And how do you think that plays into the courage to vote, the courage to run and things of that nature? When you asked about how women make decisions on how to vote, I remembered one of the very first doors that I knocked. I talked to a woman and asked her for her vote. And she said that her husband makes the decisions about they vote for. Luckily, that was very strange to me because my mom would have been like, <laughs> okay, yeah, please tell me, tell me how to vote. Mm-hmm. It's and even that was in, you know, probably the most progressive part of the state in Norman. Not to say that I encountered that a whole lot, but it does exist. And there's in Oklahoma, as in, as, as is happening in almost every other state, there is this huge rural-urban divide. And you're seeing Oklahoma City and Tulsa and some of its suburbs, some of their suburbs, becoming more and more progressive. I mean, we have, we do have a female member of Congress who's a Democrat, Kendra Horn, um, in the 5th Congressional District in Oklahoma City. And that's a huge step forward uh, for Oklahoma. It's really astounding to see the differences between rural and urban areas of our, our state, because part of my job as minority leader is to try to help get more Democrats elected. Yeah. And I've been told several times, like, you can't recruit a woman to run in rural Oklahoma. Like, they're they're not a good candidate. You have to recruit a man. And I mean, I've been told that countless times. And these aren't from, you know, mean-spirited, misogynistic people. They're just telling me what they see as the truth. Mm -hmm. And they could be, they could be right that, you know, a woman's not going to win in one of those districts. So I'm not attacking the people who told me that. I'm just saying there are huge problems in rural Oklahoma that we have to fix. Mm -hmm. And Part of that is, you know, these conversations like Allison's family had about, um, oh my goodness, I believe these things too. And something I want to add on to that story is that my dad, who I love, and I think his head was just trying to be logical about this, but he used to tell my mom that if she voted Democrat and he voted Republican, that her vote didn't matter because they were canceling each other out. And that was how he got her to vote with him. Mm. yeah i've trust me i've heard that several times i I mean and it's like okay so 
none of us should vote? Is that yeah. how it works? <laughs> like, but now right, his or- two lesbian daughters are canceling out his vote. So, <laughs> bye. Amazing. Yes. <laughs> Amazing. Dad. Oh my God, I love that. The thing that keeps, well, a lot of things keep me awake at night, but one of the things that keeps me awake at night is how to communicate to people in rural Oklahoma, especially women in rural Oklahoma, about why my beliefs and my policies are better for them than the other sides. And I mean, I, that is a hill that I will die on that what I believe is better for you personally and better for your family than what the Republican party wants for you right now. But we get caught up, they get caught up in these attacks and these fear tactics that we see, number one, our president um, using every day that Antifa is coming to get you. Like, do you see any Antifa in Alva, Oklahoma? Because I don't. Do you even it's not see happening in the pandemic. Black people in Alva, Oklahoma? Probably not. Right. right. Like, what are we I actually mean, talking about? Right. Right. Exactly. So, like, Black Lives Matter protests aren't happening in those places. So, Antifa is staying home. Um, but I don't know how to make that connection. And I know that I'm not the only elected official struggling with it. I want access to a quality education for everyone. I want access to quality, affordable health care for everyone. These are good things for people, especially in rural Oklahoma, where our educational and healthcare outcomes are abysmal. Mm-hmm. But we get bogged down again by this us versus them dichotomy, I guess, that goes so far back into we've got poor white people have to have someone to look down on. And so we look down on black people. And when you when you research it, you're like, oh, wow, this makes perfect sense for the people who are in power um, Mm -hmm. to keep them in power. Mm -hmm. And so that's the one thing that that I don't know helps me a little bit is that this system wasn't created overnight. It was planned and it took a lot of time. And so we're not going to undo it overnight, but we have to do things every day to try to undo it. Yes. Thank you so much. But yeah, it's really heavy. Yeah. Well, it is. And it's, you know, I mean, you said a second ago, you know, it's one of the things that keeps you up at night. And I love that so much. I find myself looking at so many politicians going like, how do you fucking sleep? How do you live with yourself? <laughs> Someone the other day online was like, how does Betsy DeVos sleep? And I replied in a coffin. Cause it's the only thing that makes sense to me. She's undead. Right? Like there's no right. fucking way you can peddle those lies and want to take the school. I mean, it can't, I can't, you know, and it's, I was it's hard. Say, she probably sleeps very well. Cause oh, she has sure. like, you know, all the ambient and right. remote curtains from that black yes. rock money. Yeah. bitch sleeps like a queen. Yes. And she's a sociopath. Eight. So she doesn't care about all the lies. That no. She yes. <sighs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's good. My, I, I found my rage. Oh man, Emily, thank you so much for taking the time to do this at the end of your long day. It has been an extreme pleasure getting your insights and chatting with you about books and just getting to see your face. So yeah, I'm probably not going to be able to come to Oklahoma anytime soon. I know. I know you, we all should stay put. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's do that. But it really was wonderful to chat with you all. And it was a fantastic way to end my day. 
I want to thank you for joining us for this episode of Off the Fucking Rails with Kim Griffin. OTFR is produced by myself, Allison Beauregard, Jared Alexander, and Marquia Nicole Smith. Our rad-ass theme song was written by Julie Crockett and is performed by the Evangenitals. You can find out more about the Evangenitals, our associate producers, guests, recommendations, and more by visiting thekimgriffin.com forward slash off the fucking rails or following us on Instagram at OTFRpod. If you're becoming an insatiable fan of the pod and can't resist throwing us some money, why not consider becoming a patron? We just launched a Patreon. I think that's how you say it. We'll put more information in the blurb about this episode. We know you have a literal fuck ton of options when it comes to podcasts, so I want to thank you for joining us. We endeavor to have new episodes every other week, and we hope to be in your ears again soon. Bye-bye. Off the beaten train.